Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series called Bible Teaching You Can Trust. So turning your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 to 9, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Look for God-Centeredness. often when Christians evaluate a preacher or a Bible teacher, they look for subjective clues. So stop, let's clarify that. Did you know that all Christians evaluate those who teach them? Yeah, we we all do. We like them or we don't like them or so-and-so is better or this guy's not bad. I mean, even if you say that you don't do it, you know that you do. Since all of us evaluate those who are called to teach us, the real question remains, What is our basis for evaluation? You know, I'm going to suggest that we all do it on one of two factors. We'll call one the subjective evaluation and the other the objective evaluation. So let's start with the subjective evaluation. And here, I don't mean that you like the sound of the guy's voice or the look of him. I mean, here I mean he speaks to my heart or he's relevant to my situation. He identifies with me. He he ministers to my felt needs. You know, here I might also add, I feel closer to God, or I understand my salvation and faith in this teaching, or even I understand my world better because of this teacher, and I can get through the toughest and hardest and deepest valleys in my life because of this, and and for that reason, I'm grateful and thankful. Well, there's nothing wrong with the subjective evaluation of a teacher, but the subjective evaluation, when left by itself, is deeply inadequate. I mean, what if the person who helps you with many of life's issues is also a false teacher? That's often happened in history and now. Let me suggest an example that might help us all understand what I'm getting at. You know, some time ago, I ran across a supposed Christian approach to dealing with life's emotional traumas. Sound interesting? Well, it was. But the further I looked into it, I could see that the founders of this program also denied the Trinity and denied the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Now, I know that for some, it's not even an issue. The real issue is, will it help me with some of the deep wounds that I've been carrying from childhood? And I get that. The pain that some people feel is acute. They're desperate for someone who can help make the trauma bearable. But I think of it this way. Imagine the same trauma, and then imagine that someone offers you crack cocaine. You know, whenever you're on the drug, amazingly, just for the moment, the pain is taken away with an ever-so-sweet feeling of relief and even pleasure and something you haven't felt for years. I mean, how can it be wrong when it feels so right? But it can be wrong. The cure might just kill you, or it might just enslave you down the road with a bigger trauma than the one you're presently dealing with. The point I'm trying to make is that there really is something much akin to spiritual crack cocaine, a treatment that will, if left unchecked, lead you to spiritual enslavement and eventually to death. And that's why it's so important to ask and answer the question, how can I know when I can trust Bible teaching? And here we need to apply some objective measures around how one can tell whether or not we can trust a given Bible teacher or a given Bible teaching. Now, during this week, I recognize that most people listening to my voice are also consuming Bible teaching from just a wide variety of sources, and that's good. So how can I know I can trust Bible teaching? And so I want to address five issues. First, 
Is the teaching you're consuming God-centered or man-centered? Second, is the teaching you're consuming grace-centered or work-centered? Third, is the teaching you're consuming centered on the historic, once-for-all nature of the Christian faith, or is it novel? Fourth, does the teaching you're consuming arise from the Scripture, or does it simply use the Scripture to make a point? And finally, fifth, does the teaching you're consuming cause you to look to Christ, and is it given with an understanding of the unity of the whole Bible? So let's start with a first marker. Is the teaching you're consuming God-centered or man-centered? You might wonder why I start here. I mean, after all, you'd think if for one week I'm talking about Bible teaching that you can trust, that I would start by giving you good tools for Bible study and then help you to see if the teacher is actually teaching the text or abusing the text. But consider the following example. Let's say we hear a teaching on adultery and how important it is to remain faithful to your spouse. And when it's all done, you know, if you've been faithful, you might well feel proud of your track record. I mean, unlike all those other bums who have been unfaithful. It is possible to accurately teach a text and yet to abuse a text. Well, how so? Well, let me give you an example from the teaching of Jesus. Luke 18, 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That was the sin of the Pharisees. They taught faithfulness to the law, to the written word of God, but when they did, guess who was glorified? It was the person who did the law and not God. You see, when self or when humanity, when our deeds, you know, are placed at the center rather than the glory of God, all Bible teaching becomes a vile thing. It's something hated by God. You know, sometimes people who claim to be most biblical are actually the worst of sinners. So I don't think we can talk about faithful Bible teaching until we address the question, in the end, who gets credit? who's glorified, who's exalted, and who's made the theme of the teaching. If everything you've ever heard from a Bible teacher is about, you know, how to have a good marriage or how to be the best you that you can be or how to get out of debt or how to stop worrying or how to overcome your poor self-image and how to grab life by the horns and make the most out of it, well, I can promise you the, the sum total of all of that is so that you become the object of your adoration. In such a case, God is only the tool that you use to get the best deal for you. In contrast, listen to how the Bible actually reads. Let's start with a glorious truth that in the gospel, God is offering us the forgiveness of sins. And in that note, Psalm 25 verse 11 says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. So why should God pardon our guilt? And the answer, for the sake of his great name. Or consider Psalm 79, verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. 
deliver us, atone for our sins for your name's sake. That is, do it to demonstrate just how great you are because the greatness of your name is the ultimate good. And that's not just about forgiveness. It's really about everything. You know, the very famous Psalm 23. Well, listen to verses 2 and 3, how it speaks what God does for us. And then it ends by proclaiming why God does this for us. See, the passage says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Now listen, for his name's sake. That is to say, the reason why God is so gracious is to demonstrate his glory, his worth, the excellence of his being. Isaiah 48 verse 9 says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. And then in Isaiah 48, verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. For Samuel 12, 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Over and over, God tells us that he does all things for his glory. Even according to Isaiah 43, verse 7, created the world and all that's in it for his glory as an outward expression of his perfections. I say this again. See, if it's not about God, if it's not about his excellence or his attributes or his fame or about the loveliness of God, or if it's not about losing ourselves and finding in God the priceless treasure, if that's not repeatedly the theme of Bible teaching, don't you trust it. The Bible says that God will defend his glory, that God is jealous for his great name. And if it's good Bible teaching, that teaching will be jealous for the glory of God. See, that's one of the reasons why, you know, in my own Bible teaching, I'm so reticent to give us any credit for our own salvation. I would not even cede the statement that I made a choice for God, lest we think that my choice is of greater consequence than God's mercy. No, no. When it does not put God's glory as the first priority, it does not make God the first priority. Every week in doubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada airs a new insightful conversation about issues of life and faith targeted to a young adult audience. These conversations include Christian pastors and leaders from around the globe discussing important topics from a biblical perspective. Topics such as the sanctity of life or forgiveness, sexuality, the church, issues of mental health, loneliness, abuse, always with the intention of offering a biblical response. Join In Doubt on air on the indoubt.ca website, the Indoubt mobile app, or subscribe for our weekly podcast. We live in a time and place where the daily questions of life and faith are challenging. We believe the Bible will guide us toward truth and, and challenge us to live radically different lives. For more information about Endowed or if you'd like to support this ministry, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca. When it comes to the being of God and about His glory, where do we start? You know, how will we describe God? How are we going to talk about Him? See, in this regard, I love what Martin Luther has taught us. 
You know, he wrote, no faith in, no knowledge and no understanding of God insofar as he has not revealed are possible. That whenever we think of God, chances are we won't be thinking of God at all. Rather, we're going to be thinking of our own ideas of God or our own creations of God. That's why John Kelvin taught us that the the human heart is an idle factory. Whenever we or anyone else starts a sentence with, you know, I like to think about God as, you know, my first impulse as well as your first impulse ought to be run away. You're about to hear idolatry, your own thoughts rather than God. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So here's a little truth. The highest thought that you have ever entertained about God is a stinking, filthy misrepresentation of him who is altogether glorious. It's exactly what Isaiah is saying. Well, then, if that's the case, how is it even possible for mere human beings to speak or to think about God at all? See, on the one hand, we might think it is impossible, but then, if we even think that, we've not yet come to know God. For the God of the Bible, who is the real God, the ever-living one, this God has chosen to declare himself to us, and that's what the Bible is all about. It's about God's self-declaration. Think of it this way. Imagine a mother is speaking to a one-year-old child. The child can't possibly know what the mother knows. How can the mother make herself known to her child? And the answer, she's going to speak to the child in language that is appropriate for his or her age. The mother's going to choose words that can be understood using thoughts that can be grasped. That's what God has done in the Bible. Since, as Isaiah says, the human mind can't comprehend God, well, then, in that case, the great and glorious God has condescended to speak to us about himself in words that are designed to be understood by us. He who made our minds has revealed himself in a way that our minds and our souls will grasp. See, that's why God-centered Bible believers— Scour the scriptures to learn everything that God has told us about himself. We know that he is the highest concern that anyone can have. But I know there might be those who say, well, I just, I'm, I'm just not sure. Isn't my highest concern the wounds that you know, I've received in my childhood or the, the lack of self-esteem that I constantly struggle with or the feelings of personal inadequacy that I've always struggled with? See, my answer is simple. That is not your highest concern. Imagine someone standing at the Grand Canyon and staring at it for the very first time. See, I still remember the first time I saw it. I I was staggered. You know, it occurred to me that all the pictures I'd ever seen of the place never even came close to capturing its grandeur. I think that's because no picture frame really can take it in. I, I was left breathless in wonder. But here's what I also know. No one who stares at the Grand Canyon or for that matter, who looks through a lens of a telescope and stares at the rings of Saturn, ever thinks in that moment, I'm so overwhelmed at just how great I am. Because in the moment of staring at the grandeur of creation, we for a moment lose all our problems in the wonder of something magnificent, something in which we lose ourselves for that moment. 
But what a pale contrast that is to reading scripture and finally beginning to understand the God who is portrayed there. You know, in his book on preaching, author and pastor John Piper tells of a time when he preached through a series on the attributes of God. He had decided during that series of sermons to make no application, even though he knew that application was a key part of all preaching. But he wanted no more than to have his people capture the vision of God that's found in Scripture and to, as graphically as he could, help his people to see it. You know, he writes that during that time, he received a number of letters from people who said, you know, their lives were transformed. You know, one couple wrote and said that their marriage was healed. You know, he asked them how that was possible, given that he never even made one mention about marriage. And they responded by saying, we needed to see something greater than our problems, and we did. It helped everything else fall into place. And that's the essence of the Bible. Psalm 37 verse 4 commands us to delight ourselves in the Lord. Psalm 97 verse 12 tells us to rejoice in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is, there is no human activity for the Christian that is not done as an expression of our adoration of the God who made us and redeemed us. God-centeredness is the passion and the goal of the Christian life. And when we become God-focused, what are we focusing on? See, it might be tempting here to try to give a list of all the attributes of God that we find in Scripture, but let me suggest just three. First, when we focus on God, we should focus on Him as the all-sufficient God, the God who has no needs. Psalm 50 verse 12 says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. That means that God needs you for nothing. He does not need you, and all that you do, that does nothing for him. Are you shocked? Listen to what Paul says in Acts 17, 25. He's talking about the God who made everything, and then he adds, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need us for anything. You know, we add nothing to God. We provide him with nothing. Our obedience doesn't benefit him. Rather, it benefits us. People who think that they're doing things for God fall into the trap of legalism. You know, God, they pray, after all I've done for you, so now that's how you treat me. What folly, what, what idolatry. God is so much greater than the best of our efforts. The whole nature of the Christian life is not us in our arrogance pretending that we're going to help an all-sufficient God out but rather that the all-sufficient God is helping us out. Second, when we focus on God, we should focus on him as the holy God. Think, for instance, of Isaiah 6, when Isaiah says that he was in the temple and suddenly it was filled with the glory of God. So what does Isaiah do? He doesn't say, oh, it's cool. I'm hanging out with God. Rather, he says, woe is me. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Or go to Revelation 4, as John describes the throne room of the one who lives forever, and he sees the elders fall down before the throne, proclaiming, you alone are worthy. And as the four living creatures cry out, holy, holy, holy. Marvel that when God came down to Mount Sinai, described in Exodus 19 and 20, that the mountain trembled and the people were afraid that if God continued to speak, they would all die. It is through this prism 
that we need to see the glory of our salvation. That as the writer of Hebrews reminds us that we have been given the privilege through the blood of Christ our Savior to enter into the presence of God knowing that his blood has provided access. The holiness of God will lead us to quake in fear and then to highly honor the cross for the cross of our Lord has allowed us even to enter into the Holy of Holies. From that vantage point, prayer no longer becomes a chore, but rather it feeds on the fierce holiness of a God who would consume us and yet invites us to come. Finally and thirdly, when we focus on God, we should focus on him as the sovereign God. I know all Christians say they believe that God is sovereign, but they go through life acting as if it is not true. Consider very well Romans 8:28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that is, there has never been one experience you've ever had that has not been orchestrated by God, both for his glory and for your long-term good. The ruler of the universe rules over all your experiences, every one of them, including your failures and defeats. He's orchestrated every one of these so that you would have the very best eternity possible. Nothing's out of control. Everything is the product of his meticulous designs. If you listen to Bible teaching and do not get this impression that everything taught from the Bible leads to the glory of God and is ultimately concerned with the overwhelming greatness of God, then it's not Bible teaching that you can trust. Rather, it's a teaching meant to pander to your own needs and desires. Stay away. Thanks, John. You know, this is an important series. I'm so looking forward to it. But but some may be thinking, can't I just choose to listen to teachers that I'm comfortable with and perhaps even entertained by? (laughs) Yeah, Ben, you know, there are a lot of people I'm sure that do exactly that. But to do that is to make a deliberate choice, and it is the choice to be a non-discerning individual. It is to put our own, you know, earthly needs, and usually it's earthly, our own earthly needs ahead of kingdom-centeredness and of the joy that's set before us in glory. So it's so important uh, to ask discerning questions so that the, the, the goals of Scripture and the glory of God become the biggest issue for all of us. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We're so grateful for those who listen, view, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement confirms that people are being impacted through the trustworthy teaching of the Bible. Just a couple of recent notes. I'm so thankful for teaching which emphasizes both the free offer of the gospel and the urgent need for godly living in response to the gospel. And I find your teaching is helping me grow in my faith. And for me, you're an essential service. Please keep on teaching the Bible. Thank you for joining us in ministry. This is why you matter. Your partnership ensures that instead of living in confusion, Canadians from all generations, coast to coast, can grow in faith, understand the gospel, and access trustworthy Bible teaching. And don't forget this month, we want to send you as our free gift, Dr. John's brand new series, Bible Teaching You Can Trust. 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.